0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. You might be wondering why President Trump of the US is picking a fight with China over a social media app called TikTok that's used mainly by children to make and to share funny short-form videos. My interviewee on this episode of the New Money Review podcast can shed some light on what's going on. Lana Swartz is an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, She's just written a book called New Money, How Payment Became Social Media, which I read a few weeks ago and found fascinating. In the book, Lana explains how money is one of the oldest forms of human communication and how it should be understood more as a social messaging system than as a system of economics. Who we pay and how we pay, in other words, may be more important than how much money is involved. And with the rise of new technologies for social media like Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, China's WeChat and Alipay, there's a massive change taking place. In a real sense, the message and the messaging platform is now the money itself. And that explains the sensitivity of politicians and regulators in the US, in China and elsewhere to who gets to control the new social media infrastructure. Hence Trump's moves to clamp down on TikTok in effect to deprive the 20% of US kids who use the app to share videos from the opportunity of doing so. In the podcast, as you'll hear, Professor Swartz also explores the huge questions we all need to face as our social media platforms merge with the systems for money and payments. Who governs things? Who censors things? How do we prevent the emergence of a new economic feudalism? Perhaps that kind of system is already here. If you enjoy the New Money Review podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or Blueberry. Please share our content with your friends and colleagues. Lana, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and where you work and what you're working on?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, um, and I come to media studies uh, from sort of the perspective of studying social media, studying um, communication technology, and kind of looking at how various forms of communication and their related technologies change over time and how that change uh, impacts, you know, the way we live our lives. And so within the context of media studies and communication technology, I'm sort of the f- one of the few people who've kind of popped up to say, wait a minute, one of the most important forms of communication is money. And to then look at the technologies that support that, whether that is cash, you know, which is Paper currency, um, and you know, clearly a form of media, um, and then looking all the way through uh, the rise of fintech and stuff like Venmo and Bitcoin.
0: Thank you for explaining that. You've got a, a book coming out, or it may already be published, called "New Money: How Payment Became Social Media." Um, so, how has money become social media? Why, why, why do you say the two things are essentially the same?
1: Yeah, which, by the way, great title for your website. (laughs) Great minds think alike, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I think about money as a form of media, um, which I think allows us to pay attention not just to the kind of traditional politics or traditional meaning of money, which tends to be purely economic, tends to kind of pay attention to things like who has money, who doesn't, how did they get it? How do some people not get it? And instead, look at the actual mechanisms of money. So the infrastructure of payment, Um, you know, in some, as I argue in the book, not having access to the money you have because of a technological failure is effectively the same thing as not having any money at all. Um, So, you know, I I, I think that by paying attention to money as a technology, it opens up all new forms of questions, new forms of histories. Um, And then, of course, I also think, alongside, you know, economic anthropologists and economic sociologists, that Money is social, so money has always been social. Um, you know, when I got married a few years ago, everyone uh, you know told gave me the good advice that the person who pays is the person who makes the decisions. So um, you have to be careful, like who you accept money from, because it's inherently a mechanism of control. Even if that control is simply from your mother-in-law, um, you know, there's a reason why we don't pay. We, why we, we do pay therapists because um, otherwise it would just be a weird one-sided friendship. So in that case, the money kind of carves out the therapeutic space. So I come from a kind of theoretical background of trying to think about money as media and then think about that media as having social and cultural meaning. Um, and then... After kind of building that theoretical machine, I turn to the changes that have been that have been happening more recently. So, really, in the last ten years, there's been an explosion of changes in the technologies of money, and therefore changes in the kind of social capacity of that money. And of course, when we say social, so of course, so I say, you know, money has always been social, money has always been media, and now suddenly it's becoming social media, meaning it's becoming entailed in the Silicon Valley social media tech industry. And with it comes lots of other things we should be paying attention to. You know, suddenly um, the rails, the infrastructure and who controls them are changing, moving from, you know, banks and other traditional um, consumer financial services um, to, you know silicon valley companies social media companies like facebook google
0: you in your book there was a a, a, a section i found particularly interesting um, where you talk about the evolution of state currencies so you know the dollar bills that we see pound notes euro sign, euro, euro notes uh, they all have a kind of uh, association with the idea of a nation state or a political territory uh, and then you 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 argue that that is that's changing now so it, it, could you explain to listeners you know what's going on there
1: yeah, so you know, looking back historically, um, you know, a lot of people either tend to think about state issued currencies or commodity currencies. So it's either cash or it's gold. But in reality, um, in most of the world, uh, well up into the nineteenth century, uh, state issued currencies were not. Dominant. So, in the U.S., up until um, just about after the Civil War, there were state-issued currencies circulating, but they circulated alongside all other kinds of notes, including, um, you know, regional currencies, bank-issued currencies, fake bank-issued currencies, foreign currencies, um, company scrip from employers, and you really had to kind of know which currency would be worth something tomorrow, which currency was actually valuable, which currency had been issued from a bank that was still in business. Um, And so it wasn't just a question of denomination. You know, that's a $1 bill versus a $5 bill. It was a question of, of issuance. So, you know, maybe a $5 Bill from a um, issued by the US Treasury Department would be worth more than a $5 bill issued by a local lumber company. So, uh, or worth more in different places by different people. So, it really was this kind of monetary cacophony, um, this world of just all kinds of monetary plurality and that has been true historically and it's still true in many places of the world where lots of different kinds of currencies cir- circulate alongside each other and people have to make decisions about which ones are most appropriate to use in which context so, um, so this idea yeah. of, a,
0: of a single uh, monetary territory you know the dollar dollar area or the pound area or the, the euro or the yen area this is a kind of a um, a 19th century idea that's lasted you know hasn't been that long a part of human history
1: that's right so i mean you could look at it as something that's like relatively recent and therefore we could you know denaturalize it or we could look at it as kind of one of the achievements of modernity you know one of the things that the the big nation state that seems to be sort of um under attack right now um, created that actually smoothed things out for its citizens that made it easier to to have a kind of economic language within the territory of a country or, or otherwise economic area. And, you know, as a media studies scholar, I always kind of return back to the kind of the textual or like the media. And I love how, you know, I think it's fascinating that the euro notes were designed with imaginary architecture. So like these bridges yeah. and arches that don't exist anywhere in the yeah. The world that, but do kind of share this uh, or t- attempt to conjure up this shared notion of Europeanness and projected. Yeah, I ad- remember the
0: London press making fun of that when when the Euro notes first uh, appeared. Uh, yeah. That was kind of a, g- a general kind of Euro skeptic uh,
1: exactly. view,
0: which has continued. Uh, but and this it's, may it's, be it's, like a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea.
1: And this might be a bit cavalier, but I kind of wonder what would have happened if the Euro had been adopted in the UK and if the Euro and that kind of sense of shared European identity. Had more truly penetrated into the um, everyday economic lives of uh, folks living in the UK. But it's it's hard to know. But I do think, you know, as Eric Hellener, who's a, another scholar of money, puts it, you know, money and the, the um, iconography printed on money is a key form of propaganda that circulates in everyday life. In the US, it's probably the most... The only time we come in contact with iconography of the federal government is when we use dollars. So what happens when that digitizes? What happens when that goes away? What happens when we're still denominating and thinking in dollars and pounds and euros, but we're not actually seeing them or handling them? Um, yeah.
0: let, let me ask you that point, Donna, too. Um, in your book, you, you give for some very interesting examples of um, – so you say that money is, a, is should be seen as a form of communication – and that then begs the question of who controls the, the communication. Does somebody guarantee free speech or can, can the communication be, be censored? And, and you do give some examples of people trying to use modern payment mechanisms and having their transactions stopped because of you know, something they attached to the transaction or who they were. Or, you know, so could you talk a bit more about how these kinds of um, interruptions of payments can occur?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, people always ask me what my favorite form of payment is. And I always say cash because it's self-clearing. It's anonymous. Um, You know, uh, this philosopher or the excuse me, the philosopher Georg Simmel wrote about how cash really made possible the modern metropolis because suddenly we were able to live as strangers. So in the past, we lived in small communities, small villages, and everybody knew everybody. And for the most part, people kind of kept accounts and kept put things on the tab and you'd pay it off later. Um, But that only worked if everybody knows you and where you live and who your grandmother is. Um, So now, but then the kind of Anonymity of state issued currency, the anonymity of cash um, allowed for this kind of anonymous but also free life. Um, yes. So, this kind of trade off between like freedom and anonymity and maybe uh, atomization, maybe um, loneliness. Um, but I think there's a tremendous value in. Being anonymous, in being unknown. And so now, as we're increasingly trying to digitize cash, digitize the rails of money, um, that isn't happening, you know, as as some Bitcoin. certain Bitcoin proponents might bemoan, that isn't happening through an anonymous cryptocurrency cash, digital cash-like system. Instead, it's happening through Silicon Valley companies who have a vested interest in collecting personal data um, and putting that data to variety of uses, whether it's marketing, whether it's uh, risk assessment, fraud prevention, that sort of thing. And of course, they are um, all beholden to Regulation like anti money laundering, know your customer, et cetera, and are trying to use the data associated with transactions to better predict and better root out um, money laundering, fraud, terrorism, that sort of thing. So, what, when, and of course, they're doing it through these kind of automated machine learning systems that kind of use big data. But one of the problems with the way a machine learns in machine learning is that it necessarily entails a lot of false positives. So for example, I had a student my first year at the University of Virginia, who was the head of the Turkish Student Association. And he um, every year hosted a banquet and this year for the students at the end of the year. And and he was the the president. You know, So he was in charge of collecting all the money and hiring out the caterer and all of that. Um, So suddenly he Started getting a huge influx of payments to his Venmo that had the Turkish flag or made jokes about Turkey, um, and and so that tripped up Venmo's um, uh, anti money laundering and know your customer um, algorithm because it was suddenly a large amount of cash that coming or payments coming in that he'd never seen and. For whatever reason, Turkey was on the list of their kind of f- flagged words that, that required further attention. Um, yeah. So his account was flagged. It was frozen. And he was required to offer up an explanation of all of these payments and account for them um, before he could access his money again. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to open his account in time. And they had to postpone the banquet because he wasn't able to access any of the money that his friends and fellow club members had given him. And this kind of thing happens all the time, whether it is a Business owner who um, you know opens a business and suddenly is able to get off the ground and running, and suddenly is making a lot more money than they were last week, and that gets flagged. Um, whether it is a you know uh, yoga instructor who suddenly starts selling CBD and doesn't realize that CBD falls in the gray area of the terms of service of her um, platform payments company, whether it's a person making jokes as one example, um, that I read about, which was, uh, you know, someone wrote Obama, NSA, um, Osama bin Laden latte when paying their friend back for Starbucks, just joking, but <laughs> it, a, a machine, an algorithm doesn't have a very good sense of humor. And when you have terms of service-based systems enforced by algorithm, trying to learn what, a you know, what is a joke and what isn't, um, you know, a false positive is actually evidence of the machine learning, and the humans who are caught in the crossfire um, are kind of just the collateral damage.
0: So, so how, how can we develop uh, systems to manage all this, or to govern all these difficult decisions? Because there are going to be lots of these gray areas for this foreseeable future.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a key question. I mean, one. One uh, answer that I've heard from the industry is that, you know, every false positive means that we're moving closer to a better system. Um, and, you know, that's, that is true, I guess. Um, but, that's the optimistic way of looking at this. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I, I mean, I don't have the answers for that. But I do think that that it's important that the designers of would-be future of payments um Really take seriously how important their work is and really recognize that that money is a form of communication, but it's a very special form of communication. It's a form of communication that can mean you know paying your bills or not paying your bills, getting groceries or not paying groceries. Um, it can truly be life or death for people yeah so it's, Does it's that mean some, that money yeah. is going to
0: be some kind of opt-in system, or is it going to be an exclusionary system? So certain, you know, the idea—I mean, that's the way the current banking system works, and if certain people are kept out of the system. Will it will we be switching to see things as a kind of opt-in version of different types of money? You know, pe- people can join depending on what their community is. You know, whether it's virtual or national, or, or what you know, how are they however people see themselves.
1: Yeah, I do think we will be moving to a future that looks a lot more like the past. So kind of this monetary plurality, monetary cacophony, um, where there are lots of different currencies circulating and we're all making decisions about which ones are most, you know, we should use for which occasions and that that will be tiered, hierarchical, stratified. So um, already, you know, I have as a you know good member of the middle class in the United States or upper middle class professoriate, you know, I have my Chase Sapphire Reserve, which is a premium elite credit card um, that gives me access to um, the best airline lounges and and gives me money off my TSA pre-check and all of that. Because at one point before (laughs) in in my old life, I was traveling quite a bit, uh, going to conferences and that sort of thing. Um, And every time I swipe that card, I'm getting rewards. I'm getting frequent flyer miles. I'm getting cash back. Um, And but the majority of, of people living in the U.S. are don't have a banking relationship at all or unbanked or underbanked. And in order to buy things online or buy things at places that don't accept cash, of which there are increasing numbers, they have to use prepaid cards. Um, and these prepaid cards are increasingly becoming appified and are accepting um, accepting uh, deposits. So if you drive for Uber, you can have your Uber payments directly transferred into your prepaid card app, which is an app and then it's also a card. And every time they swipe that, they are paying. So they can pay, um, you know, cents to dollars per swipe up to $10 to $20 a month for to, to maintain the account. Um, so whereas I, you know, who makes more money than they do am getting paid every time I pay, they who are much more, you know, living on the the margins are paying to pay, um, so I think we're going to see increasing uh, stratification, not just of the kind of forms of payment, like the the rails, the types of card we use, but of the money forms themselves. So the and and that we will be moving. I don't think national currencies or, you know, um, territorial currencies are going anywhere, but I think they'll see increasing competition from a variety of, of privately issued or kind of quasi monies, um, that don't look like the kind of fun libertarian fantasy of Bitcoin, but instead look more like the company script, you know, um, the mining company script of the past and, and that will, it will likely just increase inequality and, um, distinction rather than decrease it
0: yeah yeah
1: i mean, i could you
0: could you talk a bit more about the gray areas in in payments because that uh, you know, it's it's a it's a topic that comes up all the time whether it's the, the the boundaries between the cryptocurrency markets and the traditional financial system or in the case of the card uh in the debit and credit card markets that you know the the involvement of different intermediaries that are handling higher risk um types of payment because that generates you know those those generate the biggest margins you know how, how can we keep an eye on what's going there, but going on there? Because in some ways it seems to be that's going to set the the tone for you know that's that's going to show us how the whole system is evolving.
1: Um, I'm not really sure what you mean. Sorry. Okay. No, just, if you uh, can take that, take the question uh, slightly uh, again, or uh, yeah,
0: well, let me just, let me tell you where I'm coming from. So the, yeah. I've recently written a few articles about Wirecard, the you know the German payments company that. Uh, that's discovered a two billion euro hole in its accounts and um, mm-hmm. Wirecard, you know, for a, a, a couple of decades, had, uh, as I understand it, had, had, had specialized in handling or processing the, you know, the higher risk parts of the payment market, whether it's payments to do with porn sites or gambling. You know, f- they were finding um, inefficiencies, let's say, in the, in the cross-border payment system, and, and kind of moving there to because that's where the, the biggest margins were. So. You know, is this this kind of gray area, is it a gray area in between what's legitimate and what's, what's not, you know, how can we best, you know, see what's going on there? How's the infrastructure changing to, you know, to handle that, that part of the payments market?
1: Mm. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I'm, I'm, I, I actually, my, my new, my next project is about scams and the whole, um, the the whole time that I have been studying payments and studying cryptocurrencies, really for the last ten years, I've been fascinated by the all these moments where things don't work as they're quote unquote supposed to, or you know what kinds of economic activity is legitimized as yeah. okay, and what kinds of economic activity is legitimized as like scammy, um, or, or rather not legitimized. Um, and and I've you know been collecting tons of stories that I think are just kind of fascinating around that space, but I really don't. Have it. I really am struggling to kind of think about how to answer your your questions. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just, I'm really just fascinated out about loud. it. No, it's yeah, me too. Not- I, I
0: find that uh, I've always <laughs> you know, the, the, the human stories involved in big frauds, big scams are always yeah. amazing. So, uh, so uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, I
1: think one thing that's I mean really interesting is you know in the cryptocurrency space there's there's tons and tons of scams. You know, like the DAO, distributed autonomous organizations, seem to be mostly you know. Ways to separate people from their money—they're all the countless pump and dumps um, of of uh, altcoins—and and I always wonder, you know, is that a bug or is that a feature? Like, is is that not how if if we imagine that cryptocurrencies actually are these like unfettered market-driven, you know, free from regulation? You know, is is that wild westiness like not the yeah. way it's supposed to work? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, and. Yeah. So and then, you just know, why,
0: why central bankers have such a hard time accepting this as a form of money, which mm-hmm. uh, which it clearly is. I would say, you know, after a decade or more of Bitcoin, you know, you can't dispute that it's there and it's you know it's still going and it's uh, mm-hmm. it has a, a a certain value, which is actually being be becoming less volatile over time. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, mm-hmm. there, it, you know, there it is. It's uh, it's and it's still you know still
1: yeah. more and more computers joining
0: the network. So- right,
1: but at the same time, it's like okay, so whether You know, if we recognize that there's all these different forms of money and we recognize that we can design money in many different ways um, to serve particular ends, then it just becomes a question of what kind of money do we want to design? And does that mean excluding certain forms? Um, Perhaps, but that – then becomes you know what are the legitimate mechanisms through which we can exclude and regulate certain forms of money um and as the landscape is changing so too are the legitimacy of regulators and so too are the um legitimacy of of regimes of regulation that doesn't mean that we shouldn't figure out how to build a world together and how to build the monetary world we want to live in um but it it does mean, I think, rethinking a lot of the mechanisms of how we do that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about
0: social media again. Uh, in, in your book, uh, you talk about the what I found very fascinating example of Venmo uh, and, and its role in the, in the US uh, uh, payment system. And you, you, you point out that people use Venmo to send small volumes of money to one another or to share in groups. And often they do it with, you know, in a social media way, you know, using emojis or small short messages. And sometimes people spend, uh, you know, send tiny amounts of money as a kind of uh, hello um, communication. So what that, that kind of brings me to the question of, um, you know, clearly there's a, a, an affinity between money and social media messaging. So that, you know, the biggest social media networks out there, you know, Facebook with its Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, aren't they, you know, almost they're guaranteed to, at some point to, you know, to get into the payments and money business and and, to, and take over. I mean, that's the way I see it.
1: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So every payment, Every social media platform, every major social media platform, has attempted to launch a payments component in the last ten years. Um, almost all of them have not been successful, um, or, or anyway, have not really taken off. Um, and the in in the US, the most kind of um, the 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 most social payment system that has taken off is Venmo, um, which as you describe is kind of this uh, social media-like feed where when you send someone a little bit of money, whether it's to pay them back for drinks or for a, the rent or for whatever, you are kind of obliged to addend, uh, or append a little note or an emoji. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can then, if you don't set your... Transactions to private, you can ser- you can kind of check out wh- who your friends have been paying, um, what they've been saying about what they've been paying, and you know who your friends been getting paid by. So there's a lot of humor about Venmo sort of becoming like the you know, quote unquote Venmo stocking becoming the biggest source of FOMO. So fear of missing out. So you can see that all your friends have gone out to drinks without you. You can see that your um, ex is, is now, you know, exchanging cute little emoji, small dollar payments with a a new um, love interest. Um, So, and then, you know, all kinds of new kind of social practices have emerged, such as, you know, penny poking, as you put it, or sending your friend the exact amount of money for what you know um, their favorite coffee or favorite cocktail costs on a day when you know they have a big pr- work presentation or something coming up. Um, uh, and then, you know, there's – so. So it's, it is only a matter of time before that's enfolded into one of the major platforms. Um, but at the same time, I do think that people, uh, use platforms for different purposes. So, you know, my students who are all under the age of 21, um, which means they were born in, you know, nine, 2000 or, 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 uh, Or a little, or thereabouts. Um, Thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Use all different platforms for different purposes. So they think about Facebook almost as the place where their parents are, um, where kind of official life is lived, and they avoid it as much as possible for their actual social interactions, turning instead to you know WhatsApp or not. Sorry, not WhatsApp. Turning said to Instagram, um, which, of course, is owned by Facebook but kind of feels different, um, or TikTok or other, other yeah. platforms. So their lives are kind of spread out across different platforms, and so, too, I think they want – they, they would like to see their kind of payments if they are to become social kind of spread out or any way that they're able to kind of use different platforms as appropriate. Um, you yeah. don't want to make, you know, there's there's recent, uh, <laughs> uh, there's some unofficial research that have come out that says that um, some large percentage of millennials have used Venmo to buy drugs, which are not, it's not surprising. Um, and, but at the same time, you don't want that on your Facebook. You, you want to yeah. be able to uh, submerge that in different ways. Yeah. So I do think that, you know, Facebook is clearly positioned to um, take, take hold in the payment space. It's a truly is the closest thing we have to a universal address book. Um yeah. But I think that there are reasons why payments or Facebook's various attempts at payment have not been successful. And that is because of the trust issue, but also because we want to be able to, um, we want to be able to have our transactional lives uh, have some amount of, of, we want to shield it from surveillance, if not from the companies, but from the people in our social lives.
0: Right, but for the foreseeable future, these kinds of networks are going to be, you know, run and controlled by some uh, some robot, basically some AI algorithm that that weeds out what it perceives to be illegitimate transactions. But and, and so it'll be very hard to. I mean, we can presumably you can you know have something reset or you can make a complaint, but uh, at the top level, they'll be run by something auto- automated.
1: Yeah, I mean, even PayPal, which has kind of been doing. Person to person electronic payments since the 90s. Um, if you go to you know the PayPal customer service uh, pages um, or look at various message boards, including that have names like F PayPal, and you can fill in what I don't know what what how uh, G rated this podcast is, but you can uh, um, figure it out. You know there are countless complaints and. I don't think any of the person to person electronic payments platforms have gotten it right. And I don't think that they're necessarily making it their top priority um, to get it right for everyone all the time. And I think another issue is that almost all of these payments are kind of multi layered with lots of different parties involved. So, you know, there would be, um, let's say, a crowdfunding. Platform would have there's the, first there's the terms of service of the crowdfunding platform. Then there is their kind of platform payments um, provider, which has their own terms of service. And beneath that is the platform payments provider's processor, which have their own rules, which are largely different than the yeah. um, you know rules of a platform. And underneath that you have their acquiring bank, and so on and so on. And these various layers and these various players are still learning how to play together um, and how to really um, provide the kinds of services that, that, work at every level and with every new kind of innovation um, of, of paying, whether, you know, crowdfunding is kind of a novel way of imagining um, how, that people would pay each other, micropayments for services, that sort of thing. At every le- every time there's a new kind of innovation, they have to kind of rethink all of these rules, not to mention the various, um, you know, government regulations that are in, in play. So it's very complicated. It's something that that we only notice when it's broken. We expect yeah. you know to tap or swipe or you know whatever and that mad then the magic happens and it happens instantly um yeah but i mean there was a very good know- example
0: of this recently in, in the uk with wirecard because the the uk financial regulator said to the uk subsidiary of wirecard which is a, the card processing or, or a card processing unit you know to stop its operations because they were concerned about money being sent back to the parent company in germany which was insolvent but by doing that they suddenly they they they, they turned off 50 or more prepaid card services. And I I, I really doubt that they knew that they were all so uh, reliant on that single entity. So there are lots of kind of undisclosed or maybe even unknown um, dependencies in the payment system that, Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, we we may only see when things go go wrong.
1: Absolutely. And I actually think that that's a larger problem with kind of tech industry culture. I say Silicon Valley because I'm American and that's kind of my imagination but i also think that you know the kind of logics of how things work in silicon valley are easily exported all over the world and yeah. often are but this idea of of you know any random 20 year old has some you know some boy genius has an idea and we should throw millions of dollars in venture capital funding at this idea and and we'll fail fast or get to scale fast and figure yeah. out how to make money later and i i really do think this kind of rush to product um, is is part of where the problem comes in. It's kind of baked into the culture of innovation um, that that people kind of don't necessarily really know what they're doing, <laughs> and um, yeah. and you know, and that's part of just the way things work. And it's like an acceptable and tolerable rate of failure. But then I think. You know, if you're accepting and having a tolerable way to failure when it comes to like sending around selfies, that's one thing. But when it comes to sending around people's actual money and giving them access to their actual money that they need to live, that's another. And that innovators really need to take seriously. There, um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a
0: big, yeah. there's a big gap between the way the traditional financial system works and you know the conservatism of the people running the payment systems there, and um, and what you've just described. I mean, I've, I've been on a Facebook group uh, of one of the affected. Uh, prepaid card services that was you know there was shut down for a few days and I was actually amazed at how the, the the people using this card from all around the world mainly freelancers were saying you know I can't get my money it's got stuck it's, it's here I was amazed at how patient the people were waiting for their funds to reappear in some cases you know two or three weeks later they 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 they, they were being sent from one person to another to, the, in the companies concerned and they still hadn't got their money back but I thought well that's that's really quite amazing that the pe- people are so uh, you know so tolerant of these uh, these delays but maybe that's just the way people have got people have got used to things working like that in 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 new forms of tech yeah
1: i think there's definitely you know a lot of what psychologists would call learned helplessness where you just sort of accept that you know it's impossible to get any sort of customer service um so but yeah and i i you know one one interview someone someone i interviewed a couple of years ago and in a very similar circumstance um Said of their kind of new innovate payments innovation platform that it was the worst of both worlds. It was like like a bank um, with the customer <laughs> service of Facebook. So uh, uh, yeah. Of
0: this, yeah, and there yeah. really
1: is there isn't very good means of, of redress for platforms in general, um, yeah. whether that is operating at the governance level or at the kind of individual customer service level. And if you're not bound by a market mechanism nor a governance mechanism, I don't really know um, how we can hold these kinds of companies accountable.
0: Yeah, sobering thoughts. And, and um, so one uh, quote from your book, you say the future is medieval. Um, you know, Are we going to have to go back to the period before or get used to having lots of different types of money, lots of different types of economic relationships?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, that, you know, many times I talk with like young idealistic, um, you know, either libertarians or um, kind of uh, extra national, you know, non-state you know, people have a vision for a a more collaborative future or a more market-based future. And they imagine that we can kind of change the money, change the world. And that's true. But I, I do wonder if instead of ushering in, um, kind of new forms of collaboration or new forms of, of, um, commodity currency, if instead we're simply just, um, making, opening the door for new forms of kind of corporatism or, you know, Silicon Valley feudalism. And, uh, we need to kind of think carefully about what, uh, what forms of interaction and forms of money we're throwing away and what kind of future we're building.
0: Okay. Well, Anna, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, I can thoroughly recommend your book to anyone listening. I, thank you. Had a very, yeah. had a, I found it fascinating and, um, yeah, I- good luck with your next project
1: thank you so much and just um it's if you order the book if you the book is available as a ebook and it's also available as an audio book um but if you pre-order the hardcover from yale university press and use the code y money so the letter y and money you can get 30 percent off so yeah um thank you so much for having me on
0: listening to this new money review podcast the future of money in 30 minutes money is changing fast it's moving more quickly and cheaply it's becoming more intelligent and more transparent at the same time it's becoming more complex and for many of us more annoying if you'd like to support new money review you can do so in two ways on the right hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com you can find a link to our patreon account p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash new money review There you can make a regular payment to support us or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right hand side of our homepage. Thank you.